daughter was in high school, part of the, the singing group, as part of her extracurricular activities. She loved to sing. Many of you have heard her sing over the years. When she was in this particular group, she had uh, for quite some time hoped that the uh, <coughs> leader, the teacher, would allow her the opportunity to sing a solo part in one of the school's programs. Finally, after quite some time, she was indeed given a, a solo part in one of the presentations that was supposed to be given at a certain time, and eventually she did sing that solo at that particular event. However, prior to that regular scheduled performance, rather unexpectedly, I think, the group was invited to sing on a TV program that was put out over the low-power Christian station that existed in Cary in those days. And so the group went there, and the uh, instructor had uh, told them that they would be singing this particular song that uh, included her solo part. So she was quite excited about that. And my wife and I showed up at the station to uh, be there and uh, lend support and witness that. The group came in and got all situated and did they did sing the song, except when it came to Brittany's solo part, a different young lady sang that part. Kind of ruined the evening for mom and dad a little bit. <laughs> More so, I think, than for her. It was an unexpected last-minute change, and I'll leave the motivation for that for someone else to... Uh, perhaps determined, but needless to say, uh, I felt like it was a very unfair thing to do at the last minute. And I had a long-standing policy, my wife and I, of not going to teachers and complaining about anything. I was ready to throw that policy away <laughs> at that particular moment, but somehow, and I think it was probably because my daughter handled things so well and became my teacher that I did not do that. I think uh, you know, something happened a long time ago, and you, you get over it and get past it, but there's always those things that kind of you know, stick in your mind, like, boy, that was so unfair. It just wasn't right. We all have experienced something of that nature, whether it be our children or us personally. We've all been treated unfairly multiple times. And we've been, you can just make a long list, passed over for promotions we deserved, accused of things we didn't do, mistreated for no obvious reason, laughed at, ridiculed, called names, ignored, acted, acted uh, others acting as if we are unimportant, talking about us behind our backs, gossiping about us, misrepresenting things we've said or lying about us, abused verbally, physically, betrayed even by friends. How should we 
respond when things of that nature happen. And we, we could go on and on with that list. And I, I want to bring this down to a personal level because we're going to be looking at the Lord Jesus Christ and how he responded to injustice, which was of, of a great magnitude. And, and not, and, and our experiences are not comparable to that, obviously, in, in the depth of the magnitude of it. What we experience is much, much less severe or a greater, uh, not as of great as, uh, in magnitude or whatever. But our experiences, well, they, they come with life. They're part of life. They're not insignificant because even though they might not be of great magnitude, they're, they are multiple over the years. And we really, really do need help, I think, in understanding how to respond when we suffer a personal injustice. I'm not talking about social injustice. I'm not talking about anything on a scale like that. I'm just talking about things that happen to us. Every one of us. We all need a little help, a little encouragement from time to time, understanding especially how we should respond. And Jesus is our example. Obviously, we probably going to fail to rise to the level of his example. But it's important to notice it here. When he was arrested and when he was put on trial by the Jews and the Romans prior to his crucifixion, which was the greatest injustice of all. When we are confronted with injustice, we have to rely on God. That's what he did. Now, he was God, but yet he relied on the Father and the Father's will and the purposes and the plan of God. He said so in verse 52 and again in verse 54 of chapter 26, if you'll note this with me. This is what he said. He said, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must happen thus. And he's referring to his arrest and his betrayal. And then in verse 54, he added, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must... Uh, we need to move to verse 56 on this one. Uh, but all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So through it all, in the backdrop, and as a foundation to every response that he made, was this reality that was part of God's plan. And that God was a sovereign God, and we have to rely on Him and submit to His will and His purpose and His plan. So when we are, in, when we are confronted by any kind of injustice, we too have to rely on God. We have to realize there's, there's things going on that is beyond this experience. There are things happening here that offer us opportunities that are based on this experience that we're having. So how do we rely on God? How do we respond in such a way that indicates we are relying on God? 
when we're faced with injustice. And I want to look at the example that Jesus gave us here when we're on basically the last day of Christ's earthly life before his crucifixion. Very late on Thursday night, actually very early on Friday, the way we look at it. As he was tried in the wee hours of the morning, after his arrest late in the evening as well. Then stretching into the very early hours of Friday, he was arrested, he was tried, he was condemned. And then we examine how he responded to all of this. Though he was without sin and not deserving of any of it is our example. And so what we have here, I think, is four very clear principles to follow when we are faced with some sort of unfairness, injustice, mistreatment, or abuse. Move me up one. I don't know what happened to my... Let's see if I got it on. We'll try it again in a minute. When confronted with injustice, we have to rely on God. We have four principles here modeled by Jesus. The first one, (laughs) help me guys, it's not working over here. Bring it on the screen. There we go. The first principle is this. We should not be disrespectful, even if we are mistreated. Let's begin at verse 47. And while he was still speaking, it says. Now, he, he just had finished or was talking to his disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane after he had prayed three times and came and found them sleeping and uh, was telling them uh, what was going to happen and so forth. And it says, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now this seems a little strange in our Western culture in this day, but it was a normal thing to greet Folks that you loved, even of the same sex in those days, in this particular way. I I I don't know what I would do if some man came up and kissed me. I'd probably, you know, just melt there on the spot in embarrassment or something. But uh, that was normal in their situation. Now the reason for this was because it was very late, in a very dark place in the garden, and although those that came to arrest him. they probably brought torches and sources of light, yet it wasn't that uh, illuminating. And they were coming there and expecting to find at least, uh, you know, 11 men or so. And uh, it would be rather important to make sure you identified the right one and arrested the right one. And Judas served this purpose. Now, when Judas did this, Here's how Jesus responded in verse 50. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? And they came and laid hands on him and took him. 
His response to Judas is remarkable. He says, friend. And I think in a very calm and loving way, friend. Why have you come? Now he knew exactly why Jesus was, or Judas was there. Uh, he, he had already identified Judas as the betrayer at the Passover meal. This wasn't a surprise. And he chose his words very carefully. This is not the word in the Greek language for friend that comes from the Greek word, which means brother, brotherly love, phileo, philos. Even our city, Philadelphia, goes back to that, city of brotherly love. This is not the Greek word he used here that's translated friend. It is a different Greek word, which is translated in a little less personal way as maybe a companion or uh, associate, a little less affectionate, obviously, and for obvious reasons, but it is respectful, very compassionate, given the circumstances. He treated even his betrayer in a kindly fashion. Let's drop down to 55 for a moment. We'll come back to the intervening verses, but here, before he is taken away, he says something to those who came to arrest him. Now, it says here, in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes. Now, it's interesting, this group of men that came to arrest him is referred to as multitudes by Matthew. It included the chief priests and the elders and those who plotted and sought his death. It no doubt included a contingent of the temple guard, which were Jewish. It also would have uh, included a group of Roman soldiers and perhaps uh, other Roman officials. It would have been a sizable group. After all, they, they wanted to make sure that uh, Jesus did not escape. The king prepared for whatever they might face. And this isn't the first time they tried to take him. A couple of other times, it wasn't God's time and Jesus easily slipped away, miraculously so, on different occasions. There are those that have estimated that this particular group of people could have been upwards to a thousand. That seems really absorbent, uh, exorbitant to me, but uh, it, was, it was a sizable group, no doubt. And this is what he said in verse 55. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. Now, he spoke directly to the men, and he, he spoke directly and plainly, but he did not speak disrespectfully. He did not hurl accusations at them or even argue with them as to their right to be there. He just spoke of the methodology of the arrest, which, by the way, spoke volumes. They did not want him to be arrested at a time when anybody would be around. The chief priests and the elders were cowards at heart, and they feared the people. 
And what he said was pointed, and it speaks volumes, but it was not disrespectful. So there's one principle that we have before us. Principle number two is this. When treated unfairly, when met with injustice, do not resort to violence. Don't be unres- don't be disrespectable. Don't resort to violence. Now, I, I don't expect that any of us have ever been treated so poorly that we were ready to resort to violence. But society-wise, it's not an uncommon occurrence. Think of, I haven't really read the details of this most recent thing down in Georgia, but probably a good example there, as many others have been. But Peter was ready to fight. Let's back up in our context a moment. Verse 51, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Peter eventually denied him three times in fear before this night was over. But he is at least somewhat courageous at this moment, misguided as he was. I think we all are capable of being courageous or fearful, going one way or the other, any time. But we'll give Peter his due here. He stepped forward. He drew a sword. He was ready to fight and even give his life at this moment, it would seem, helplessly outnumbered. But Jesus rebukes him and says, put your sword away. And he gives him a reason for it. Now we know from other accounts in the other gospels, Jesus actually healed the servant whose ear was severed by Peter's sword. By the way, Peter wasn't aiming his ear at his ear. I believe he was aiming to take his head off. So it was a very serious thing. You, you can just imagine the sword coming this way, and the servant giving, and he only catches the ear. That's not what he was aiming to do. It's just what occurred. So, Jesus said, put put your sword away. Those who draw the sword are going to die by the sword. Now, what did he mean by that? There are those that believe that Christians should be completely passive in every situation. But let me draw your attention to the book of Luke, chapter 22 and verse 38. Jesus is speaking to his disciples shortly before this instance, talking about the great dangers they would face. And the disciples responded to him in light of that and said, Lord, look, here, here, we have two swords, because Jesus had mentioned the sword probably in a prophetic sense and in a metaphorical sense, but they took him literally and, and said, uh, well, here are two swords. I mean, of the, of the twelve, there were two swords being carried by two of them. 
short sword, carried on the waist, probably underneath their outer robes, not at all unlike what we would call concealed carry today. Of course, we don't carry swords, but similar. Well, what did Jesus say when they said, well, hey, we have two swords. He said this. He said, it is enough. Now, why didn't he rebuke them then? Why didn't he say, get rid of those swords? If you, if you carry those swords, you're going to die with the sword. Well, because the reason they were carrying those swords and the way Peter used that sword that night is two totally different situations and circumstances. The Lord Jesus recognized the need at times to defend oneself from violent attack, from unjust and loyal and unjust and unlawful violence against your person or against some other innocent person. These men traveled extensively in the countryside and could have encountered all sorts of criminals, evil people. God is not opposed to defending oneself against unlawful violence or others for that matter. But this situation in the garden was different. As evil as it all was, as evil as the plot was, as contrived as it all was, it was still legal in many ways. It wasn't unlawful. At least not at this point. The Roman soldiers had legal obligation to follow orders and arrest criminals. The, even the Jewish temple guards. And Jesus is recognizing as, as, as evil and unjust as it was. These were legal authorities that Peter was resisting the sword, resisting arrest. And, and, God, and, and Jesus is just simply saying, look, if, if you try to resist arrest, you're going to suffer the, the consequences. If we try to resist here in this circumstance, we're going to suffer the consequences. It's not going to be good. So that's what he is saying. Now, he goes on not only to recognize that fact, but to say something more to Peter. By the way, it doesn't say Peter here in Matthew, but he's identified in the other Gospels as the one. He has something further to say to him. Verse 53, he says, Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? Now, a Roman legion consisted of six thousand soldiers. When Jesus said, do you not think I can pray to the Father and he will send me 12 legions of angels? You want to count that up? It's 72,000 angels. Now, even if there were a thousand men in that party, that would be, well, God only need, would only need one angel. He wouldn't even need an angel to defend himself. But Jesus is making a point. God could bring overwhelming force to bear, to protect him. You see, God didn't need, Jesus didn't need Peter's help. Not here. 
For all that was unfolding was according to God's plan and purpose. And Peter not only was doing the wrong thing, he was doing the wrong thing in the wrong way. Without understanding it all. When we rely on God, a large part of that is understanding God doesn't need our help. We can rely on Him. And so principle number one, do not be disrespectful to your accusers. Number two, do not resort to violence. And then number three, do not respond in anger. I suppose this could be rolled in with the last point, but I want to make a little distinction here. Beginning at verse 57, the scene changes. He has been arrested. He has been removed from the garden and taken back to the city. And he's at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, in verse 57. And thus begins his trials. Now, I'm not going to go into the details, but these night trials, the way they were conducted according to Jewish law, was unlawful. So that adds to the injustice of it all. His trial first consisted of appearing before Caiaphas, who wasn't the acting high priest, but he was a previous high priest who still, you know, he still pulled the strings. He still was the power broker. So he begins there and basically condemns him. But the Jewish, (coughs) excuse me, the Jewish authorities could not execute anyone lawfully because they were under Roman rule at that time. The the Romans had the final say on that. So Caiaphas and, and Annas, the acting high priest, uh, they in the Sanhedrin here, the, the 70 that were the ruling body among the Jews, they they have him sent to Pilate. Now, Pilate was a Roman authority over the the broad region. And Pilate finds no fault in him and uh, sends him on to Herod. We're not going to talk about that today, but Herod was underneath a Pilate and he had jurisdiction immediately, including Jerusalem. Herod doesn't find any fault either or any cause for execution, sends him back to Pilate. Well, the Jews end up Manipulating Pilate by saying, look, if you don't do this, there's going to be a revolt, there's going to be a resurrection, not a resurrection, a insurrection. And Pilate being a good Roman politician, in fact, maybe just a good politician, period, is more concerned about his own position and power than most anything else. So he basically signs the death warrant for Jesus' execution. Now, that's what's about to unfold. Let's begin at... And we're going to just look at part of this. Begin at the home of Ephesus, verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now we'll come back to that whole story next week. Verse 59. Now the chief priests... And the elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They had to have a reason to have him crucified. Verse 60 says, but found none. 
Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. No reason, no capital offense. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, he did say that. They didn't understand what he meant. They took it too literally. But this was the best they could throw at him. Evoking this response by Caiaphas in verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is this? These men testify against you. But Jesus kept silent. And we're going to stop right there. This is a fulfillment of prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7. Where Isaiah says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, though he opened not his mouth. Now, he later spoke, both to Caiaphas and to Pilate. But this silence refers to his silence in regard to these false accusations. His silence in regard to not responding to them. He did not dignify these false accusations with an answer. Fulfilling scripture. Neither did he in any way show anger. Or lash out at them because they were false accusations. He just endured them and remained silent. He did the same later on in the presence of Pilate when it involved those same false accusations and others. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23 with me. Speaking of the Lord and his suffering, and how we should follow that example. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Look at verse 22. There we go. And verse 23. Who committed no sin. In other words, when, when, he was, when he was faced with all this injustice and evil, he did not sin. Which reminds me of another verse we're going to get to in a minute. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Then in verse 23, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered did not threaten, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. He relied on God the Father and God's perfect plan and sovereignty over it all. Now in Ephesians 4.26, the scripture says, be angry, Paul writing here, be angry and do not sin. You see, anger is not evil. Anger is not sin. But how we handle our anger can easily become sin. Jesus became angry when he thrust the money changers out of the temple. You remember that on two occasions. Anger is not sin. And sometimes anger leads to the righteous response, which in the case of the cleansing of the temple was to move them out. But here, 
God's will and purpose for him was to remain silent in, in conjunction with prophecy and yet be in perfect control. I, I, there's no doubt he was angry. He was a human being in addition to being God and God himself gets angry. But he did not lose control. As Paul said, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. There is a proper way to deal with it. And when you're angry, you need to express that anger, but you need to do so without sinful behavior being attached. Deal with it on a regular basis before the sun goes down in perfect control. But Jesus did not lash out in anger. That's the third principle here. We've noted three. Being respectful, well, we put it in the negative. Do not be disrespectful. Do not resort to violence. Do not respond in anger. Three negatives, now we're going to move to one positive here. And this is perhaps, well, it has to be the most important in a way. Principle number three, boldly affirm your faith. Boldly affirm your faith. Let's go back. Chapter 26, right where we left off, in verse 63, we read the first sentence which says, But Jesus kept silent, but now he's about to speak. And the high priest answered and said to him, because he wouldn't respond otherwise, the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he said to him, It is as you said. In other words, yes. I am. So he not only said, yes, I am the Messiah, the Christ, God the Son, but let me add a little bit to it, Caiaphas. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. Now notice the word power is capitalized, it it refers to God. The word the in front of it is a definite article. It occurs here in the Greek, which means the power. Not any power, not some power, but the ultimate power. You're going to see me seated at the right hand of God and understand that with us resides the ultimate power. I may seem to you weak, And defeated, and you may think you have the upper hand, but there's a day coming when you will stand before the power that I possess. Not only that, he says, and coming on the clouds of heaven. (laughs) The whole world will see him coming. The end of the tribulation period, as he comes back, every eye shall see him. Yes, he's coming and he will be the judge of the nations. So Jesus spoke very pointedly, very in regard to who he was. He did not dignify answering those false accusations, but when asked pointedly, are you the Christ? He said, "Uh, yes, I am, and here's what that means. I want to give you a little flashback to something that Matthew doesn't record. 
But if you turn back in chapter 26 to verse 51, where it says, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew the sword. If you look at the gospel of John chapter 18, you'll realize when you read through it that something happened just before Peter drew the sword. Now we're going to put John 18, 6 on the screen, and then I'll read down to it, starting at verse 3. This is what happened just before Peter drew that sword. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? So Judas shows up, Judas gives him that kiss of betrayal, and Jesus basically steps beyond Judas and steps toward those who came to arrest him. He didn't go that way, he went that way. And he said, I think in a very controlled manner, whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now we come to verse 6. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now notice the word he is capitalized because that obviously refers to Jesus. But it's in italics. It's not a translation of anything from the Greek. It helps us understand because in English we would have I am, we wouldn't have really caught it maybe. But when he says I am, he's using the same wording that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3.14. When Moses said, whom shall I tell the children of Israel has sent me back to deliver you out of the hand of Pharaoh? He says, tell them that I am. Now in the Hebrew, it just simply references existence. I am. But see, he has always been the I am. He has always existed. He has been always here. His eternality has no beginning and it has no end. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. But he doesn't have an end. That's just the way uh, he... The scripture illustrates that for us. You can go either direction. You can't get to the end. But if you could, he'd be there already. Now we have a beginning, you and I. It began when we were conceived in our mother's womb, not when we were born. That's important, you know. Now, we will go on eternally. Our physical bodies will die, but our bodies will be resurrected. In the meantime, we'll be in with the Lord anyway. We will be eternal. But we had a finite beginning. God does not. This in, in, in Jewish, from a Jewish perspective and with Jewish ears hearing it, they would have caught the meaning. But here's the thing. The verse says, when they all heard it, they fell to the ground. 
At this moment, somehow, in some way, the divine power of God was so forceful in that spoken word, it literally rendered them helpless on the ground. That didn't make any difference in their perspective because they were evil. They rejected him. You know, sometimes people think, well, people could just see miracles. You know, maybe they believe. No, they wouldn't. Those that reject, reject. Now, again, he was boldly affirming who he was. He wasn't boldly affirming his faith because he had no faith. He is faith. He is God. He was affirming who he was. We, on the other hand, affirm our faith in Him when we have the opportunity. And when we are faced with injustice and unfairness and mistreatment, it's not only a burden to bear, but it's an opportunity at hand. And when we understand that, that's easier to rely on God to take advantage of that opportunity. By the way, there are those that say Jesus wasn't God. He was just a good man. That's not logical, because he clearly said he was God. Good men don't lie about being God. We say, well, well, maybe he was just deranged. Maybe he was just deceived. There's only three options, logically. He either was a liar, a lunatic, or he was God. But he can't be a good man. Now, when we are faced with injustice, we need to respond in a particular way. Here's a little story that comes from Dr. Howard Hendricks, longtime professor at Dallas Theological. I don't know where he recorded this, but I don't have the reference here. But apparently, he told this story more than once about being on an airplane and flying somewhere. And there was a very obnoxious passenger on the plane that was continually complaining about this, that, or the other. It happened multiple times, it seems, and he was very offensive and abusive toward the stewardess. But each time that he erupted, the stewardess was so kind and gracious and controlled that she handled the situation. And Dr. Hendricks observed this on more than one occasion. Eventually, He called the stewardess over and complimented her for a good attitude dealing with the difficult man. He said, by the way, could I have your name? I would like to write a letter and commend you to the president of the airline. Her response took him back. She said, thank you, sir, but I don't work for American Airlines. Dr. Hendricks was a little shocked. He managed to blurt out, you don't? To which she explained, she said, I work for Jesus Christ. American Airlines just pays the freight. That's why she had that attitude. And with every offense, with every injustice, somehow, some way, there's an opportunity to bear our faith, to affirm our faith, to glorify God. 
I had to learn that lesson myself years ago. When my daughter was pulled from that solo, I didn't have a lot of really righteous thoughts. (laughs) As I said, the parent learned from the child. Rather than focusing on the offense, she seemed to rather shift gears. She began talking to the people at the TV station and asked, could they use some volunteer help? And they said, oh, sure, we need volunteers all the time. We especially need people to run cameras for our shows. So she volunteered and she began to go on a regular basis to run their cameras for them. That then developed eventually into an idea that she had for a teenage TV program. She pitched the idea, and they said yes, and the show Teen Scene then was the result. She more or less did it all on herself, except Mom helped write the scripts, and I helped build the scenery. That was my job. (laughs) Chrissy is... Chrissy was on that program. Robbie Ray was on that program back in those days on more than one occasion. There was a, an article in the, the uh, News and Observer about the whole thing. She took the injustice, the unfairness, and followed it through to the proper response. What does God have for me here? Why, why am I here? What is the opportunity? I learned a lot from that, watching that whole thing. I sure could have messed it all up if I would have gotten the middle of it. But God has a plan. He's sovereign. We need to rely on him. Boldly affirm our faith as she did. Took a little while. She affirmed her faith and many other young youngsters did as well as a result. These principles are very clear here. The way Jesus was treated and how he responded, they're far more easily understood than they are applied to our lives. But so necessary. And it'll become so much more necessary, no doubt, as the days go forth from here.